Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Unfathomable, a podcast about UFOs and human evidence, tells the stories of close encounter witnesses in their own words. No interpretation, no debunking, no middleman. To listen, subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And for information on how to share your story, find us on the web at unfathomablecast.com. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Somewhere in the Skies podcast is always free to consume, but it isn't free to create. That's why I've started the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. I saw what I believe to have been a UFO when I was 12 years old. That event clearly had a huge impact on me and how my life played out ever since. And this got me thinking about a topic that I haven't covered yet on the show, and that's childhood UFO encounters. We often ignore the small voices of children brushing their words off as pure imagination. But when the eyes of hundreds of children witness a UFO at the same time, it's hard to ignore that something is going on. Is it merely children making up stories? A mass hysteria running through their impressionable minds? Or are there actually intelligences from other planets visiting these children to attempt communication when adults simply can't or won't listen? Today, I speak with Michael Huntington about some of the most interesting and bizarre cases of children and UFOs stretching back almost a century and all across the world. Michael is a paranormal travel writer and UFO researcher living in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Each year, he travels with his wife and two young boys to dozens of strange and interesting locations throughout America, chronicling their adventures in blog form known as Strange Travels. Michael has researched the UFO mystery for over 40 years and frequently writes on issues related to the reform of ufology and improving rational methodology. He has been interviewed on television and numerous radio programs discussing a variety of paranormal topics, his family's unusual travels, and the enigmatic UFO subject. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Huntington. There is a topic 
within the UFO subset that I've wanted to cover for a while now, and I couldn't think of a better person to bring on to sort of hash this out with me. We're going to overview some of the most famous child UFO cases in UFO history. Like I said, this is a subset of sightings that often gets overlooked, and now... What I find, as I'm sure you do, Michael, is that children usually are honest. You know, they're innocent bystanders when it comes to this topic. So, again, usually you're getting this unfettered, sort of uncensored account when children have the UFO sighting or encounter. And those encounters are often very dramatic. And what I didn't know personally is that there are many more cases that I first thought could be lumped into this category. They're so many of them out there. So I'd love to go through a bunch of those today. My guest is Michael Huntington. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Oh, it's uh, it's always great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to uh, discussing these cases. They're definitely interesting. And I think it might surprise people uh, with uh, what we came up with here. I think so. Like we'd been talking about earlier, there's a lot of uh, literature and documentaries that are going to be coming out soon about this very topic of children in UFOs and why so many kids have seen UFOs throughout the years. So I think it's very appropriate that we kind of run through this and, you know, get that out there so people can look into it before all of this really stunning revelations and uh, documentation of these come out. So, again, thank you. Um, I guess we sort of have to start really early on. And one of the first cases that you and I came across was the uh, the 1917 Fatima sighting in Portugal. You know, while many believe this to be a religious experience, the actual accounts were very similar to a UFO sighting, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe you could sort of run us through this and get us started on child encounters with UFOs. Uh, yeah, definitely. And uh, before we uh, jump into this, I, I, I would want to say that you're absolutely right. This is just uh, skimming the surface of uh, these type of encounters. Uh, and, and we're going to try to focus on uh, you know, some of the, the, the better documented ones, the ones with uh, a lot of witnesses, but there are certainly hundreds, if not thousands of other cases out there uh, just involving uh, children. And really a good place to start uh, would be 100 years ago in uh, Fatima. And uh, you're right, uh, when people look at this uh, story, uh, uh, this account, it's definitely viewed as a religious miracle. Uh, and it can certainly be viewed through that angle. In fact, all the uh, the participants uh, viewed it through, you know, a, a, a rural peasant Catholic uh, viewpoint when they tried to interpret what was an unusual series of events uh, involving lights in the sky and people coming down from the lights and uh, giving messages, which, uh, you know, even if you uh, separate the religious aspect, uh, you at least have on some level if there was indeed an incident, you know, pretty much a, a classic encounter. In 1917, uh, what this began around was three children, and they were uh, uh, peasant sheep herders. They were in like seven or eight years of age, and, you know, they were looking after their uh, their flock, and uh, they had a series of uh, lights come down from the sky, and glowing beings, uh, which they viewed as angels and the Virgin Mary, uh, came out and... Uh, Gave messages, and uh, there was a uh, I think uh, five events 
that took place over uh, over the course of that year, and uh, it became engulfed, uh, you know, by the uh, the local uh, Catholics in the uh, area as a miracle. And towards the latter uh, uh, parts of these encounters, uh, there were possibly tens of thousands of witnesses to uh, you know strange happenings in the sky. Whew. Now, uh, talk about a mass sighting. You know, yes, I think uh, some numbers, uh, or I think the uh, the uh, October 13th uh, encounter, which was uh, called the Miracle of the Sun, had somewhere 70,000 witnesses. Wow. Whether or not we could attribute this to some sort of religious mass hysteria coupled with, you know, some sort of atmospheric phenomenon, you know, that that's, that's sort of separate from, uh, you know, the issue as to whether or not something happened, you know. And uh, there's a lot to suggest that there was at least at the outset with these children some sort of... Uh, some sort of physical event, some sort of actual, you know, glowing craft, you know, with lightning shooting out of it. You know, we got a lot of the elements uh, here that uh, went on into the, some of the contactee stories. Uh, you know, the, these children ended up becoming uh, saints. They're, or they're on their way to be uh, becoming saints. You know, they ended up uh, going into the uh, the clergy because of this uh, this miracle, and uh, they they had revelations. Uh, that they got from these angels uh, relative to, you know, a lot of the uh, contactee messages of, you know, let's end war, let's, uh, you know, work together, you know, sort of the utopian uh, vision of uh, of what Earth should be. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really an intriguing case, and, it, it, and it's a good kickoff to uh, looking at cases that uh, involve kids, because they definitely uh, have had their impact, and this is a good one to start with. I think so, you know, and children are so susceptible at first, you know, when th- these kids clearly were raised pretty religious, I would assume at this time, that they would right. perceive this as a miracle, that this was the Fatima. And uh, I think that's pretty interesting. We do hear this a lot that people who have UFO sightings, a lot of them consider it a religious experience. And I'm sure some of the other cases involve that as well that we'll go through. But yeah, let's fast forward, Michael, to uh, what do we got next? We've got 1952. Now, this is a case that I covered on a Patreon bonus episode of Somewhere in the Skies, and that's the Flatwoods Monster. By far one of the most incredible cases out there, one of my favorites. And it's pretty well known in West Virginia, you know, where this happened, but to many monster and UFO hunters, it's basically, it involved both of these things. So you got to tell us a little bit more about what you know about the Flatwoods Monster, Michael. Yeah, the, the Flatwoods Monster is, uh, is one of my favorite cases because it's it's just so weird, you know? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's got it's got 10-foot-tall creatures and, and weird weird saucers and, you know, government men coming in to, you know, hush everybody up. So it's got all those sort of, uh, you know, classic elements that you would find in any sort of science fiction film. But Flatwoods, uh, when it happened, you know, in 19, uh, September 12, 1952, that the time period of, of the 50s was starting to, you know, get that science fiction element, you know, influenced within the with within the culture you know you were starting to get a lot of uh, sort of science fiction uh, ideas there in the culture and uh, so when when this story came out it, it was definitely picked up by the media and uh, you know 52 you know that period everybody was saucer crazy and and this story became uh, one of the most famous ones of its time because it was all over the media and you know, even Blue Book uh, looked into it, and pretty much all the all the researchers of the of the time period had opinions on this case. And what it was is uh, 
uh, on the evening of September 12th at around 7, there were some kids playing uh, football, uh, late night football, you know, right around sunset. Kids will do that until, you know, their parents yell at them to come home. And uh, there were some kids uh, playing in the uh, school's football field and they witnessed an object like some sort of fireball or reddish ball uh, fly overhead and uh, go into, uh, into some of the nearby fields. You know, so as any group of kids that would witness something like that, you know, you're going to start running, going towards it. You know, at least the braver kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm sure there's sure there's some kids that said, oh, nope, time to go home. Yeah, that, that, that would be me. Not going to lie. <laughs> right. But uh, some of them did venture up towards where this object uh, uh, presumably came down and uh, collected a couple other kids along the way, maybe, and, and, and got an adult uh, with them. But, yeah, I think it was uh, Edward and Freddie May and then... Uh, Tommy Heyer and Neil Nunley and Ronnie Shaver and Eugene Lemon, along with uh, Kathleen May, who was the one adult, they all ventured, climbed over a fence and went into the uh, the Bailey Fisher farm where this object, where they thought it went down. So, you know, it, it started to get dark. They're going up here in the dark. There's a group of them. They're all kind of excited and they're moving up towards what they perceive to be an object, uh, you know, some sort of maybe car or truck sized object kind of a orange reddish pear you know smoke coming off of it sort of hissing you know flying saucer meteor who knows uh you know they 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 were all kind of frightened they noticed it kind of smelled weird like you know some sort of diesel fuel or some sort of chemical smell there was sort of a weird mist all around uh you know yet they ventured closer to try to get a better view and as they approached they uh saw a creature about 10 feet tall with uh, big yellowish eyes and a big red circular head and some sort of big, uh, you know, apparatus around its head, you know, possibly some sort of helmet or whatever, and you know, some a long metallic skirt and little, you know, spindly hands, and they were <laughs> uh, stopped dead in their tracks and ran away, flew back home, and you know, did what normal people would do. They would, you know, call the police and uh, and. Uh, you know, from there you get your uh, you know typical response. Of course, nothing's going to be there when you get there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. a little bit of weird you know slime on the ground, maybe a little bit of mist left over, sort of a weird smell. But you know, nothing was there when the police investigated. And as with uh, these cases at the time, you know, the the local military did take interest. You know, you had National Guardsmen out there. Uh, looking uh, to see if you know if, if there's anything out there that they need to be concerned of uh, concerned with and uh, you know there was there was nothing so uh, ultimately you know due to the lack of evidence uh, you know the government or I don't know maybe there was evidence maybe it was covered up who knows but uh, you know it, it sort of ha- has been labeled as you know a meteor event you know that a meteor came down although <laughs> I, I would think that there would still be a meteor yeah there you know uh, so that 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 doesn't kind of you know really wash what what happened there who knows uh, uh, maybe some sort of uh, you know actual you know geological event maybe uh, some sort of craft uh, maybe some sort of hallucination connected with uh, you know that gas uh, who knows but it's definitely an interesting case maybe kids are more open to see this sort of thing maybe uh although although the 
the one adult that was with them uh, was certain that she saw the same thing. So it's one of the best mysteries, one of the best mysteries to author. Yeah, and I mean, even up until today, people still celebrate this encounter there. I mean, you've got like a Flatwoods Festival every year, and that's another interesting thing is how towns embrace these things. I know you and I have talked about this in the past, is when these things happen, they ultimately become the history of these towns, and sometimes the only history of these towns that ever make yeah, it and, out to the mainstream. Yeah, and uh, Flatwood, Flatwoods is one of those stories that sort of ebbs and flows with, uh, you know, the culture and, uh, you know, how it's perceived, definitely. Uh, uh, I, I think people will, will find even more interest here. Uh, our, our friend uh, Seth Breedlove's uh, doing a Flatwoods movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, when his documentary hits, I think that'll... Uh, That'll add a lot of uh, more interest into into this uh, intriguing case, which uh, still remains a mystery. Up until this day. Well, I mean, the next one we're going to cover, man, this is going to bring us way across the ocean. And it's perhaps one of the first school sightings that involved a mass sighting. And this happened in Melbourne, Australia in 1966. So can you tell us a little bit about the Westall encounter? Yeah, uh, the Westall encounter is... uh, is probably one of the more, uh, if not the most famous, uh, mass school uh, encounter uh, sightings, and uh, it is pretty much the template for uh, you know for a lot of these uh, a lot of these type of encounters. Uh, yeah, there's uh, there's so much that's been done on this on on this subject, and uh, it it stands the as the best because there's so many witnesses that have come forward others uh, there's been a lot of great solid research you know Shane Ryan down there is pretty much uh, you know continued to work this story and and you know he's probably the best guy to talk to on on, on this uh, subject because uh, you know there there was definitely something there on that day I stood there absolutely transfixed and saw the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life and it took a while for me to sort of comprehend what I was actually looking at because I'd never seen anything like that before. There was three. The one that was closer um, was just in the sky, just sitting there. And um, then it went down, came up, and then banked on its side and took off really, really fast. It was moving away, so it had lifted off with the oval, okay, and it was moving away. Um, from us and we just were gobsmacked, started chasing it and my girlfriend and I sat on the fence, climbed up the fence and just sat there and cried. We thought it was the end of the world. I came down into the paddock where the kids had seen this thing land and the paddock grass was about knee high and as I walked through with pushing my bike with my uncle, I saw a group of about 20 people all huddled around looking at the ground, all looking at, at a circle perfect circle it was probably about four or five meters in diameter the edge of the circle was perfectly formed it wasn't as if you could you know cows or any other animals or even the kids had come in and just rolled around it was too perfect I mean I know what I saw and in fact I don't expect them to believe me because when it happened I didn't believe what I was seeing because it wasn't possible. What I was seeing wasn't possible. And uh, it, it was in April 6, in 1966, and there were some uh, there were some kids that were outside, uh, presumably for I guess for recess or maybe a, a field day, uh, and they witnessed uh, a a couple of flying saucers. Uh, you know your your classic uh, silvery uh, two disc uh, objects. Uh, you know 
flying uh, over their school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, as any large group of children would do, they became excited and, uh, you know, screamed and yelled. And uh, there were hundreds of witnesses uh, to this. Uh, pretty much, I guess, the whole school soon uh, learned uh, of the objects outside and, and everybody pretty much uh, left their classrooms to run outside and and run towards the objects, uh, which, uh, you know, had flown overhead. Uh, there were, I guess, the airplanes uh, surrounding a couple of these objects uh, at, at some point, uh, some uh, some sort of a single-engine prop plane, maybe like a Cessna or a Piper or something, more than likely a, a civilian-type uh, craft. And uh, uh, some of the kids noticed, I guess, uh, that at least one of the objects or, or some of the objects went behind uh, towards a wooded area called the Grange, uh, uh, adjacent to the school property. You know, there was a, a kind of an unused field area where a lot of the kids uh, had hung out. Some uh, of the children had reported that uh, something had landed uh, out there. There were so many different reports like that that it sort of makes this uh, event, uh, you know, uncontrovertible as to whether or not something happened, something certainly happened, uh, uh, you know, to have so many witnesses, whether it was, you know, a military uh, uh, sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, so much has been covered up. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, the news stories and reports just sort of disappeared and a lot of the paperwork, even though uh, they were definitely uh, on location uh, for that event within the following uh, days, you know, that it's, it's definitely intriguing. It's uh, it's more so than any of the other uh, experience uh, or encounters. Uh, it, it has you know sort of the conspiracy aspect to it, the cover-up element more so than any other. Yeah, yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, well, in terms of the the actual encounter, Michael, we had another one that happened that same year. Uh, this is back in the United States in Miami, Florida. This is an Opalaka sighting. Could you tell us a little bit about this one? I could uh, tell you in short that uh, at the Crestview School in Opelika, Florida, April of, uh, April 7th, 1967, just, you know, the following year after Westall, pretty much almost the exact same thing that happened in Westall happened uh, there at Opelika. <laughs> yeah, right. to, some, to some degree, uh, you know, if it, it may have lasted a, a, actually a series of days. But uh, same sort of uh, instance uh, as with Westall, you know, a group of kids uh, spot an object, you know, they uh, they uh, rush towards the object and, and teachers and uh, large groups of uh, kids, again, uh, in the hundreds here, just as there was in Westall, along with teachers, uh, you know, witness an object just beyond uh, uh, the perimeter of the school in sort of a wood swampy field area. Uh, they witness an object or maybe even multiple objects sort of uh, flying around uh, in the distance, uh, through the air, you know, through, throughout the trees. And uh, who knows? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's very similar to Westall, which, uh, which is, it really makes it intriguing. And, it became a big story uh, for its time period, uh, probably because of the National Enquirer which was literally based down the street from, uh, you know, where the school was mm. uh, in Lantana, Florida. So, you know, they definitely uh, pushed the media on this. Uh, and it was pushed at that time period. It, it became a national story. 
but it sort of died down uh, when the uh, the Navy, uh, the Coast Guard, actually, as well as uh, the Navy and uh, NASA and uh, some of the other nearby facilities, initially pushed it off as uh, uh, helicopters doing maneuvers, uh, and then uh, followed by flares. And, you, you know, and that, that sort of outraged a lot of the witnesses in the community because by that time, uh, you know, within a few days of the of the school event, other people had seen other objects throughout that area. So that sort of, you know, infuriated the uh, the townspeople, you know, when those explanations came forth. And uh, the Navy even did a demonstrative flare drop to try to show that uh, what the people had seen was, was flares, very similar to you know, what would be tried later in Phoenix, you yeah. know, Phoenix lights. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, is this maybe one of the first instances where, uh, you know, uh, flares were dropped to dissuade, uh, you know, UFO sightings. It, it, it's quite possible, but, uh, <laughs> you have to wonder, you know, with all of these mass sightings happening, how many weather balloons and flares do the military have in stock ready to go when these things happen? You just, you do yeah. have to wonder. Yeah, and and these people, you know, in these communities, it's not so much that, much that they were minding, you know, being called liars, which I'm sure they didn't appreciate, but they live next to military installations. They're not stupid, yeah. you know. Was I, I think they were more offended by that that, you know, we know what a hel- you know, we know what a Coast Guard helicopter looks like, you know. <laughs> right. So uh, similar similar sort of thing in, in Gulf Breeze and some of these other, you know, uh, military. Uh, aviation communities, you know, uh, mundane explanations for what uh, these witnesses are seeing. It just, you know, really doesn't hold water. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty offensive, if you ask me. Um, Well, the next one that we uh, we decided to cover, Michael, was the one in Connecticut. Now, this was at Camp Delaware, and this brings us up a mountain with some young hikers. So we're, we're moving away from schools. We're moving into the woods. So could you tell us a little bit about this 1976 sighting? I really found this one interesting. Yeah. Uh, even within, uh, you know, child encounter cases, there's uh, sort of this, uh, you know, Boy Scout in the woods sort of uh, uh, encounter idea that uh, has been uh, demonstrated throughout, uh, you know, the history of the subject. Uh you know, even back in 52 with the famous uh, Florida Scoutmaster, you know, where, you know, a Scoutmaster and his his little group, you know, sees something in the, you know, in the forest and, and you know, the Scoutmaster gets burnt or whatever, you know. So that that sort of story was around even in the, in the early 50s. And uh, Camp Delaware is a very similar sort of account along this, uh, along this line. Uh, it was a group of hikers. Uh, they were about, I guess, probably like 14 or 15 of them. 14, and then the uh, uh, their their hike master. Uh, they were teenagers, uh, uh, 14, 15 years of age, uh, and they were hiking uh, near Camp Delaware uh, in Winston, Connecticut, in 1976. This was uh, July 28th. Uh, they were part of a, a camp program, and uh, they were hiking towards a. Uh, Blueberry Hill, which was a, a nearby feature, a pretty decent hike. And as they neared uh, an area uh, with a, a bit of a clearing, uh, they could see an object come down that was a, a saucer with a red dome, as it was described. Mm. And, of course, they all stopped in their tracks and, you know, they pointed and uh, I don't know if anybody took any uh, pictures. I haven't heard of any pictures uh, being taken, but uh, supposedly the object had, had, you know, dipped down and it, it 
landed possibly behind uh, you know, some trees, and uh, the, the the kids, uh, you know, they ran back. They uh, went to the police, and uh, it was investigated, and it was uh, investigated as credible, uh, not just because the the counselors saw it, just maybe maybe from the fact that they were, you know, they were scouts, and these yeah. uh, these kids were, you know, not the sort that are going to lie together you know, to the police. So, you know, they, they, they got a lot of credibility just from the fact that, uh, you know, they were, I guess, sort of model citizens uh, for that time period. But uh, it became a, a case that was investigated by APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which was uh, one of the leading groups uh, in the 60s and the, uh, in the 70s. And uh, they did a thorough investigation. They investigated the area. There was, there were no trace evidence found, but, uh, from the veracity of the witnesses, and and these are teenagers. These are you know older than uh, you know some of these other accounts where uh, you know the kids have been around you know ten or even younger. Uh, when you get to teenagers, uh, the the credibility you know goes up a little bit, especially if there's an adult involved, because uh, yeah, less likelihood of, of some sort of you know practical joke. Uh, not that those don't occur, but. Uh, this case, uh, the Camp Delaware case, was considered one of the one of the better cases of the year. And I mean, I, you have to wonder what kind of badge they have for UFO hunting for these Boy Scouts. <laughs> I think they definitely would have gotten that one. Wow, that's really yeah. interesting. And you bring up some good points. Like these these kids wouldn't. Why why would they make this up? You know, you learn so many good things when you're going through the Boy Scout. You know, thing I did that growing up as well. And they they teach you to be honest. So to have made this up, I don't see it happening. And to have an adult witness this as well, uh, they definitely saw something. So that's interesting. Well, uh, let's move across the pond this time, Michael, and we're going to uh, Broadhaven. This is in Wales. Same year, 19, uh, excuse me, a year later, 1977. And this is one of the more dramatic encounters that bore a striking resemblance to another case that we're going to talk about shortly, uh, one of the most famous. So could you tell us a little about this case out of Wales? Yeah, uh, Broadhaven, uh, February fourth, nineteen seventy-seven. It was the uh, the Broadhaven school. I guess it was in the uh, the morning, or I'm, I'm trying to think of what time of the day it was. But uh, same sort of deal with a lot of these other cases. Uh, the the kids uh, notice out through the window something, or they're on the playground and they notice something, and uh, they all sort of as a group, you know, sort of <laughs> vacate the what they're there to do you know, that day to run outside and witness, uh, you know, what they think is a flying saucer landing in a field nearby the school. And the same thing uh, happened here to uh, uh, to a class uh, full of kids in this small Welsh town. Kids were around the age of 10, and uh, they witnessed some sort of, like, silvery object with, like, a red light. I, I don't know if it was intermittent or, or if it was solid, mm-hmm. but... Uh, they definitely perceived, you know, saw the red light. That's what got their attention. And they witnessed this object go down, you know, nearby uh, where the school is. Uh, so, you know, wanting to get a closer look, they, they do. And they, they see an object and they see uh, nearby, I guess, what is some sort of silvery being of some kind, some sort of a robot or a creature or whatever. Yeah, definitely, definitely weird. Uh, when kids start seeing robots, that's uh, that's really when it starts to get interesting, <laughs> yeah. you know, because uh, it, it always seems to be the children. Well, not always. Uh, yeah, it, 
but the, the kids that definitely I think are more prone to see robotic type uh, beings mm-hmm. um, which I don't know what that means you know it, maybe there's some sort of psychological component you know related to the children how they're perceiving and the phenomena or maybe you know there was just coincidentally some sort of robotic creature out there but uh, yeah this uh, this area in Wales uh, this account has sort of uh, become a big deal there's a whole area near Broadhaven that has been called the uh, Broadhaven uh, Triangle now because so much happens within that area related to, you know, strange phenomena, mm-hmm. uh, especially aerial phenomena. So, you know, 40 years on, this uh, this case is still, is still looked at as an important case uh, within uh, British ufology, and it's still celebrated, and there's still strange things going on at where, where the event near the school happened. Now, some people have come forward saying that it might have been a hoax, uh, not on behalf of the kids, but you know, uh, maybe a practical joke or a prank uh, being conducted upon the kids by somebody else, you know. But I don't know. That's a lot of work, yeah. you know, to build a flying saucer and and you know, not that it can't be done, but uh, I, I'd imagine that uh, people have better things to do with their time, you know. <laughs> and uh, we would have heard a little bit more about uh, such a hoax. Uh, after 40 years, you know, so right. still an interesting case. Yes, we do know that when the British hoax something, they definitely want it to be known, hence crop circles. I won't go any further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, here's another one, Michael. Now, this happened in 1977, this time in West Pittsburgh, California. This is one of the most interesting because J. Allen Hynek, the man, the myth, the legend, he actually considered this one one of only three credible humanoid encounters cases in that year. So could you tell us a little bit about this case out of my new neck of the woods, California? Yeah, this is uh, this is definitely a case that uh, I think people should go back and take a look at. It, it It is a Center for UFO Studies case primarily. So, you know, you start off with uh, a lot of good, credi- credible people uh, involved in this case. Uh, Richard Haynes, uh, Harder, uh, Hynek, you know, all these guys were involved in uh, in some sort of uh, investigatory aspect with this case. So uh, what happened? May 20th, 1977, West Pittsburgh, California. This is a, a, a case of three boys wanting to, you know, enjoy some of the rural area, I guess, uh, nearby them. I think they're actually looking to maybe, you know, just spend a day exploring, hanging out, maybe going to the beach. They weren't really, you know, sure what they wanted to do, but they were enjoying the outdoors. And, uh, it was Lenny Young, George Ferreira, and uh, Patrick Morrison. And as they were uh, hiking through the woods, getting ready to hitchhike, I think they were at, at one point. They. Uh... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. They encountered uh, an object in the road, sort of a flattish saucer, maybe kind of a bluish uh, tint to it. Uh, it looked like a you know what, your classic sort of flying saucer, but it was you know maybe a little squatter. It really gets strange. Uh, soon after, they uh, noticed that there's uh, you know some sort of beings coming out of this craft. They were sort of shadowy. They were uh, you know sort of robotic. Uh, they they were kind of nondescript. They were kind of difficult to describe. But uh, the boys all definitely uh, claimed to have seen these beings and that they were uh, you know sort of smoky and ethereal, you know, uh, mm. yet robotic. There, there was a lot of mist. There was a lot of smoke that was uh, put around the around the saucer as well. So uh, definitely uh, interesting, definitely weird. I don't think there was too much physical evidence uh, gathered. Again, this is one of those cases where through interviewing the witnesses, looking at motivations, looking at locations, looking at uh, consistencies uh, with, within accounts, all the motivating factors that uh, that you have from interviewing witnesses, uh, I think uh, this became a solid case uh, just based upon the testimony. Now, either these uh, these kids got their story, uh, you know, uh, just worked out uh, really well, or you know, they had a shared event. And uh, uh, a lot of noted researchers at the time uh, were convinced that they had a shared event. What I think is interesting is the description of, you know, the beings, which mm-hmm. uh, it is really not found anywhere else. And uh, it, it it's, you know, the the fact that they were kind of, you know, nondescript and, and really couldn't see features, you know, that they were shadowy, you know, that sort of makes for interesting uh, uh, possibilities to consider, you know, relative to, you know, how these creatures are perceived again, you know, whether or not they can change perception-wise through, you know, the boys themselves. Uh, who knows? It's it, definitely interesting. Yeah, yeah, very unique and bizarre. And I think that's when, you know, things start to really get interesting and when that credibility factor kind of gets bumped up a notch when something is so utterly different from these prototypical things we hear, a lot of these cases involve very similar things, robotic-like things, landing in the schoolyard, this, that. Uh, This is one of those cases, like, you know, Heineck said, where it was so different, and like you said, it was so, you know, concrete between these three witnesses that, yeah, definitely something strange happened in what these creatures were. Uh, unfortunately, we'll probably never know, but um, interesting nonetheless. But all right, my man, here, here's one that <laughs> when I read this description, I just we got to prepare the listeners for this one. We've got 
a three-eyed alien and a robot. So we're back to robots again. This is in our our friends, the USSR. This was in 1989. So please, you gotta tell us. Everyone, get your whiskey. You gotta tell us about this one. <laughs> well, my friend, let me tell you an old Russian story. <laughs> no, I can't do the whole thing with the, with that accent. Uh, no, this is uh, probably uh, when it happened. It was uh, probably. And I remember this very distinctly, probably the top news story of the day. It was on all the newspapers, and it was uh, it was a Russian task story. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the old Soviet Union uh, here, uh, even, even back then, you know, uh, government-controlled. So whatever was released was released by the Russian government. And uh, this story was released to the American press as a big story, you know, throughout the world. Uh, so, you know, the story from uh, the motherland uh, w- took place September 27th, 1989 in Voronezh, USSR, small urban, uh, you know, industrial city uh, in, in eastern, uh, uh, I, guess it, I guess it's in Russia. You know, there's a lot of Russian states over there and who knows where they're at now. No, but uh, it was, uh, you know, industrial Russian uh, city park, you know, uh, end of the Cold War era, you know, so everything's uh, the way I picture everything is kind of drab and dreary, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, like yeah, like you like you see, you know, Russia in the uh, in the eighties, uh, you know, but they uh, they love their kids just like everybody else, and uh, you know, they had parks and they and they enjoyed uh, spending time outdoors, and uh, the South Park, Veronica South Park, on this day there was. A number of kids playing and, uh, you know, some adults and uh, people walking by in the streets. Uh, it's a public city park. And the kids began to notice a, a red, maybe a pinkish red sort of object, like a like a circular, you know, like a cherry in the sky, just uh, sort of coming down towards the park. And, you know, <laughs> of course, everybody's pointing and looking and uh, their mouths are open and they're saying stuff in Russian and screaming in Russian, I'm sure, and the object comes down and lands in the park, uh, uh, you know, near the playground equipment where the kids are, so I guess the kids are the closest, you know, to this object. Good size object, I guess, uh, maybe the size of, uh, you know, a semi-truck or, you know, somewhere halfway, big enough for, you know, an eight-foot-tall or a ten-foot-tall robotic creature to get out of, you know, or... (laughs) Or uh, you know some sort of three-eyed alien because that's uh, pretty much what happened. I was standing not far from the main road of the South Park, and I saw this flying object at an approximate height, uh, 200 of 250 meters. It stayed at the same height and did not move horizontally. I was very interested by all that, because it could not be any kind of meteorological balloon. There was a squeaking sound. Perhaps some drilling tool was operating, like it was boring a hole in the ground. The creatures started coming out. They did not look too much like humans. They were much taller than humans. They did have shoulders, but they didn't see the head. He was huge. Really huge, bigger than we are. He was a mighty figure. 
I remember a crowd that gathered around the place. Everybody was scared. Everybody turned pale. I was absolutely flabbergasted. I saw some traces there, and also a strange man. Outwardly, he looked like any other man, only he was huge. A moment later, he suddenly disappeared. I had no doubt that the UFO and the giants existed, because I saw them. But sometimes when I look back, it seems sort of like a fairy tale. Within, within a few minutes, uh, you know, the door opens and uh, uh, ten foot tall, uh, three eyed, uh, strange kind of, I don't know, uh, <laughs> overall clad uh, metal overalls you know, sort of a creature uh, it comes out uh, with a uh, with a little small little, uh, you know, square robot next to it. And uh, sort of looks around, and it, it sort of gets weird. I guess they look around, they go back in their ship, uh, they come out, they disappear, they look around. Uh, you know, they're, so, they're sort of doing this in and out thing with their flying saucer. And, you know, the kids are, you know, the closest and, of course, the more curious and the more adventurous and also, you know, the dumbest. You know, they're, so they're going to... Uh, you know, approach this object and these uh, these beings, and at some point, uh, you know, the, these four kids that are getting closest to the object, uh, one of them gets zapped by a, a rod that the big creature, the the big three eyed, ten foot tall guy, is holding. He points it at one of the kids is getting too close, and he sort of freezes. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, not frozen, like with icicles hanging off him, but you know, like a suspended form of uh, you know paralysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess they get back in their ship, and then you know, at some point they take off, and uh, you know, the, the kid gradually comes out of it. This whole series of events, I guess, is like maybe a half hour, forty-five minutes. Uh, certainly, it seems like that, you know, based upon all the descriptions, you know, of sequence of events. But you know, it's one of those things where it's like everybody was like, "Hey, there's a UFO down in the park," you know. So the the crowd had actually gotten bigger. So uh, they're not just the kids uh, were witness to uh, this playground event, but uh, upwards of uh, you know maybe 50 people or maybe even into the hundreds, you know, had begun to move down towards this park. So uh, and and then it hit the media and it was a big deal in Russian press and then uh, American press. Uh, who knows? Man, they always got to try to outdo us, don't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and the Russians, uh, you know, they they did their investigation and uh, their military police and all that. Uh, interesting, though, uh, the Russians were actually a little more open to this sort of thing back then. Hmm. You know, so when they talked to like an investigator, you know, some sort of general that was investigating the, you know, the general would say stuff like, oh, it's probably aliens from outer space. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're totally OK with saying that because, you know, <laughs> it's their news uh, service so they can say whatever they want. <laughs> right. Yeah. If we've learned anything from RT news, that's kind of how it goes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, man. So on a more serious note. We are going to move to our final case, probably the most famous case to date. Many documentaries have covered it. There's going to be some more coming out. Even the Harvard psychiatrist, John Mack, was involved with this one. So please, to sort of cap all of these cases off for us, can you run us through the deeply dramatic Ruwa Zimbabwe case of 1994? Absolutely. And, uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, probably... Uh, one of the high caliber cases uh, 
in this uh, you know subset of UFO investigation and history, uh, mostly because of the uh, the quality of the investigation and the quality of the quality of the investigator uh, involved in this. And, uh, you know, if uh, if Dr. John Mack, who was head of the psychological department, I believe, at Harvard that at the time, uh, taught at Cambridge University, really high caliber, you know, learned man uh, w- within legitimate psychiatry and psychology, began to take an interest in in. UFOs, not so much, uh, you know, with uh, with an idea of investigating uh, the phenomena, but investigating people that claim interaction with the phenomena. Because as a psychologist and a psychiatrist, he was interested in, you know, what they perceived, uh, uh, what they thought, what, uh, uh, you know, it, if there was certain psychological components that he can explore. You know, can he deem uh, through uh, uh, examination and psychoanalysis, uh, you know, it, if there was some sort of, you know, reality to uh, the circumstances involving, uh, you know, encounters with uh, especially uh, beings. And he, he would use hypnotic regression and some of the classic methods to explore that. Uh, so he, he was interested in the subject as a uh, a mainstream psychologist and as somebody interested in, as I had said, the psychological aspects of uh, of encounters. And uh, so he was already on the radar. Uh, he was already out there. Uh, he, he had written some papers and, uh, you know, was under scrutiny by uh, Harvard, you know, relative to a big university, a legitimate university should be involved in investigating, you know, such things. And, and he was ultimately giving, uh, given academic freedom to explore these issues. And as a result, uh, you know, he, he began to get cases, uh, uh, thrown to him, and he was coincidentally in uh, Zimbabwe or near there uh, back in 1994, and he was uh, told of this case at uh, the aerial school in Rua, Zimbabwe, uh, just outside of Harare. And uh, he, he made it down there, uh, I think within, you know, maybe a week or two of the initial uh, encounters, and he was able to interview and, and uh, investigate more so than anybody I've heard of, you know, a case, you know, relatively quickly uh, at, on location, you know, after, after it happened. They uh, describe these experiences or these events like a person talks about something that has happened to them. Uh, and when you're talking with a, a psychotic who's telling you something and it's a delusion and you feel that it really didn't happen, I can tell. I mean, I know this is something that person wants me to believe or they're frightened or they're distorting reality in some way. There's nothing like that here. These are people of sound mind, by and large, uh, telling me something that's very... They know that I might think they're crazy and so they're a little concerned about telling me and and they they're very full of questioning themselves and doubt and I mean the way and then they describe something very real and intense a light or something happened to their body or it's the whole quality of the way they talk about it is the way a person talks about experience that, that happened to them. Uh, what happened on September 16th, 1994, uh, there were 60 kids uh, at this aerial school, and uh, Zimbabwe uh, has, you know, had its head, its periods of colonialism, you know, so there were different ethnic makeups within uh, this school, different backgrounds, you know, white children and Indian children and, and African Native children all attended this school. It was very you know, popular and, and order, organized and ordered school. And uh, 60 of these kids this day were uh, 
on the playground and uh, similar to you know the other accounts they witness you know an object you know like a cigar shaped or a flying saucer shaped object land in the fields just beyond the school grounds and uh, similar to you know some of these other stories they uh, they see a couple of men and you know mm-hmm. with the big black alien bug eyes you know sort of going in and out of this flying saucer and uh and, and that's what dr uh, uh, dr mack had gone down here to investigate and these uh, these kids uh, you know when he investigated when he interviewed them they told predominantly the same story but they just had you know they had little many sort of cultural changes you know cultural descriptions that were a little different you know, relative to, uh, you know, to uh, the creature's appearance or even the appearance of the craft. Something scared you, is that right? Yes. What, what scared you? The noise. What noise? The noise that we heard in the air. You heard a noise in the yes. air? What was it like? Like a roar or a buzz or a hum or what kind of a noise? It was like someone was blowing a flute. It was scaring myself. It was scary because you saw something yourself? Yes. Mm-hmm. I saw a little object hovering. It was quite big, actually, and then there was little ones all around it. We saw something silver, and then we quickly ran to the, lo- to the logs, and we saw a silver, silver thing, and we saw a man standing next to it. Uh, what was it, what did it feel like when he was looking at you? I felt scared. It, it felt scared? What was scary about it? Well, I felt scared because I've never seen such a person like that before. Was he near the, uh, the silver object or was he far? No, on top. On top of the silver yes. object, okay. And um, did you look at him? Yes. Did he look at you? He gave me the creeps, then I stopped Gave you the creeps. Actually, in your drawing, you showed him standing up, didn't you? Yes, I had to draw him standing up, was I couldn't draw him sitting. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought was maybe the, the world's going to end, maybe they're telling us the world's going to end. Uh, that's sort of an interesting aspect. It, it, I think everybody involved, uh, you know, the main investigators and, and Dr. Mack, you know, believed that there was some sort of encounter. And again, uh, you know, you you start getting into the, you know, when you investigate it, especially with children, you start you start to see these perceptual uh, aspects that are that are kind of interesting. And, and for Dr. Mack, was part of his investigation. You know, some of those, uh, you know, for instance, like the, the, the African children who witnessed it, uh, sort of perceived like hair, you know, and they identified it as like a, a, a classic creature, you know, from their culture called a togolishi, you know, which is like some sort of like spirit or some sort of being. Uh, so, you know, there's there's interesting stuff there to explore. I, I, I'm by no means an aerial expert. There are a lot of people out there that know a lot more. Uh, there, there are a number of documentaries coming down the road. I think Aerial Phenomena, uh, is one that is going to be uh, coming out, and I think uh, our friend James Fox has uh, been doing some aerial stuff as well for for his project. So uh, yeah, and uh, uh, some of the uh, some of the children witnesses uh, uh, they're gr- they're grown up now, so they've uh, taken to uh, speaking about their encounters. Uh, Emily Trim is one. She's out there. Uh, she speaks about uh, the uh, the encounter that she that she was involved with that day, and. Uh, 
you know, some of the uh, some of the kids uh, claim uh, further encounters or yeah. at least, you know, messages. Uh, you know, we're, we sort of have that contactee aspect of, uh, you know, receiving messages by by some of the uh, the witnesses, uh, you know, utopian type stuff, uh, which uh, is fascinating. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's a great case. And like you said, the witnesses are still willing to talk about what happened to them. And it's clear that they're still affected by this and they stick by their stories. Uh, so that's right. what I find most interesting about this one. It's the most current one we have to date. And it's also the one where we still have these witnesses around to tell the story. So this case is not going to die. These documentaries documentaries are only going to shine more light on it. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah. Michael, this, these cases, it's astounding how many there are. And like you said, right before we started, there's hundreds of more, but with all of these, all of these cases that involve children, I want to hear from you, man. In your opinion, do you think whatever is happening to these kids, do you think it's intentional by these possible intelligences? Are they actually targeting these children to appear to? Or is this all complete happenstance? Is it different for every case? Where do you sort of land in terms of why so many child UFO encounters happen? Well, uh, ultimately, I would say I think it's, you know, it's different in each case. Uh, you know, uh, I, I do think that these cases have to, to kind of, you know, be viewed independently of each other. But, you know, the, the comparisons are are really striking. <laughs> you know, uh, you can't get around that. I don't know what um, what kids are seeing. Are they, are they more open to that sort of thing? I would think that uh, it, it's probably the personality, you know, of whoever is perceiving I guess whatever uh, whatever is being perceived uh, that that's sort of a long way around of of saying uh, uh, you know maybe it, maybe it depends on the person and maybe it does depend on the fact that these are children and uh, you know perception uh, does uh, play its part into it. I, I can tell you myself though, and I, I think you're right along there with me that as a person who saw an object as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely influenced me. It got <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> it got me further interested in into the subject. You know, uh, I don't know if a lot of these uh, these people who saw these ended up going on to, uh, you know, not too many of them that that I've heard of have gone on to, you know, spread the UFO message or or whatnot. But uh, you know, at least for a time, they were vocal in in the reality of what they saw. Um, I don't know. I think uh, you know some of these cases. Maybe there's some sort of misidentification. Mass hysteria is always a possibility. Hoaxes are a possibility in some in some instances. Uh, but uh, the all of these cases, uh, I think, stand out in that uh, you know w- when you start getting into hundreds of witnesses and you start moving out of you know the child demographic and you're starting to get adult and other people seeing the same thing then something is being seen then you know something is being experienced you know perceptions as to you know beings and all that i i I find uh very intriguing uh very interesting uh what's going on i don't know yeah (laughs) that that's what makes it that's what makes these you know especially uh interesting and uh you know i'd love to track some of some, some more of these witnesses down to some of these cases to see uh how it's affected them long term, or if, uh, or if they've uh, changed their mind. I, I, I think from those that have come forward, even to this day, they stand by yeah. themselves as children. You know, this yeah. is what I saw when I was a kid. 
Yep, and and you can't ask for more than that from a witness. You know, they they have defied that sort of stigma that comes with reporting a UFO. Uh, they were kids, you know. There wasn't that this this idea that I'm going to lose my job if I talk about this, or you know, right. the Johnsons next door are going to talk about us. It's it's you know, it, it's <laughs> they're open, they're honest, and like you said, they're they're willing to be more honest than I think an adult would be in terms of coming forward with things like this. Um, in terms of that, I, I have a question for you. In in terms of like UFO organizations that investigate cases, do you think in terms of these cases that there should be some sort of organization that strict, strictly deals with kids? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's always advantageous to you know have people you know interested in specialized aspects of you know this subject and and its history. Uh, as far as an organization, I, I think uh, I think there's a pretty good Westall uh, uh, group on Facebook where a lot of these cases are discussed. It's uh, Shane Ryan, uh, the Westall uh, investigator down there, and he's done some other investigations into uh, into similar uh, school type events. Uh, I think his group would probably be a good one to uh, to sort of interconnect with uh, with different people. Uh, you know. Uh, what makes these interesting uh, and a little more problematic logistically for having a group is, uh, you know, these cases are all over the world, you know. So uh, if uh, if we're going to interact, uh, you know, relative to these cases, you know, it's probably going to have to be a cyber organization like uh, the Westall Group. But uh, definitely, I think uh, it, it's a good area of focus. And uh, yeah, and and there's other accounts out there. Yeah, we we just uh, hit the iceberg. You know, the, like, uh, the famous Delphos case was a child case. Ooh, the uh, yeah. Cash Landrum Cash Landrum was a child case. You know, yep. uh, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of our famous cases uh, uh, in, involved children, and it's uh, it, it would be good for somebody to look into that. I think uh, we got a lot of good searchers like uh, Shane out there. Uh, doing that for us so yeah he is doing some great work and again the westall case is definitely one people should look into well speaking of children michael many of my listeners they know this but some may not you are the host of the strange travels blog and don't think you weren't going to get away without talking about this man (laughs) this is where you chronicle your adventures across the u.s and with your children and your wife which again i envy tremendously (laughs) and uh you've gone to some amazing places um this past year, tell me, debrief me, have you personally uh, been to any places that you really want to talk about? Anything strange happen or really come to uh, mind, stick out? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing the same thing that we've, uh, we've been doing. Uh, I, I call myself a paranormal travel writer, but that's, uh, that's not really my job. I'm just a regular, you know, just UFO junkie here in Missouri. <laughs> uh, but I, I do take my wife and kids to interesting spots and, uh, we'll visit the occasional uh, famous UFO place. And, uh, I like to take pictures and, and document and share, uh, the big thing probably this, uh, past year, we went to, uh, Kelly, Kentucky, mm. uh, home of the, uh, the, uh, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, of 1955, you know, where a house was besieged by goblins. Yep. Uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with it, but uh, yeah, I went there for the uh, the eclipse, uh, and it just so happens uh, on the day, the anniversary a day of the uh, of the eclipse uh, was also the anniversary of the encounter. Ooh, wow, creepy. So, 
and it was also the highest, longest duration uh, of point for the eclipse. Mm. So it was <laughs> the epicenter of the eclipse at this uh, famous UFO spot. So Ooh. we had fun. We had fun there, and I got to uh, look around. I got to go onto the uh, the grounds of the property and then stand where the goblins were and look at the trees that they leapt up into and even saw the flying saucer that uh, or the uh, so, uh, circular patch that their saucer supposedly landed in in 1955 oh, wow. so that was that was sort of that that was one of the big highlights but that's the sort of thing that we do you know they they have a ufo festival and all that but uh yeah we like to do a lot of the uh, the paratourism and the ufo tourism and the you know we we go to haunted houses and bigfoot places and uh we're still doing that and we're still blogging about it and uh thank you ryan uh, i i know you've been uh Liking a lot of my stuff and complimenting me, you've uh, been a big supporter, and I do appreciate that. Oh, I love it, man. It's more jealousy than anything, but (laughs) (laughs) no, I have a great respect for what you do and that you introduce this to your children. I think that's important. You're not telling them what to think. You're not telling them what all of this is. You're introducing them to a topic that many parents would be shy away from with their children. And, you know, we grew up having experiences, and that's what led us to do this, so. I, I do. I know I've asked you this on Into the Fray, but I want to ask you again: How do you deal with this with your kids? What What do they What do they take away from seeing the indentation where a possible UFO landed and goblins came out? What does a kid make of this? That would blow my freaking mind. Well, <laughs> well, first off, uh, yeah, I'm jealous of my kids because I, you know, when I was a kid reading about this stuff, I, I wanted to go there immediately. You know, (laughs) and look around and, you know, so uh, my kids are kind of uh, lucky in that, you know, they get to go to a lot of interesting, uh, you know, places. And uh, when they're there, they know what they're there for. They know that, you know, supposedly an alien was seen over there, you know, a Bigfoot was seen, you know, right where you're standing, whatever. And they think it's fun and they think it's interesting. Uh uh they're luckily they're into all this too you know they ask a lot of questions uh i don't push you know hypotheses in fact i encourage my kids to uh, come up with different ideas and uh, that's always fun you know when we're going through the tnt area looking for the mothman you know uh, my boys will get into a competition of uh of, of theories as to what they think it really is you know uh, but there's there's always that little bit of mystery that uh, little kids maintain that always gives them a little bit of fright and a little bit of, uh, you know, intrigue and a little bit of mystery, you know, within them uh, that, that keeps them engaged. And uh, my kids, luckily, they love monsters and aliens and all that. And they, they love going along with me and exploring as well. Oh, that's awesome. God bless him. Well, what can we expect next? Where you where are you guys head in this year? Uh, the year's almost wrapped up. What, what's coming next for you guys? Uh, well, we're we're probably gonna uh, tool around here in Missouri, visit a couple of uh, you know local urban legends. You know, there's a couple of spooky haunted places and uh, uh, alien uh, landing site that I need to check out before the end of the year. But uh, next year, I, I think we're gonna. Uh, I think we're going to go up uh, to Hannibal, Missouri, visit Mark Twain's town and uh, have some fun up there. I think that's probably one of our big trips uh, that we're looking to do. We're going to go up there and maybe have my kids paint the fence, you know, and a Tom Sawyer uh, 
Pug fan uh, competition. I think uh, that might be on Mark. But that, uh, that's great, man. It's not all UFOs yeah. and ghosts and goblins. You got to teach him well, some, some and, literature too, right? <laughs> well, but you know, Ryan, there's a lot of uh, it. Also, right near there is the first Momo sighting. Okay. And, and uh, yeah, the the famous uh, you know a couple of famous UFO uh, uh, landing spots. So <laughs> I shouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm still going to take advantage of. Uh, yeah, and uh, of course, there's haunted places in Hannibal. I'm sure. So yeah, we're we're going to do the weird stuff while we uh, do our normal family stuff. You know. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well, I mean, where uh, where can we find out more about what you're doing? Well, uh, I am all over social media. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter. You know, all the all that good stuff. I, I'm usually on Facebook quite a bit, and if I'm a uh, posting something somewhere or, or talking on the radio somewhere i usually put a link up there so uh just look me up there and uh you can you can follow what uh what we're doing uh i, I do have my wordpress blog uh just uh, keeping at it but, uh, still working on the book uh hopefully uh we'll we're, we're actually expanding that and uh we're gonna do some art projects connected with it but uh uh you know when it's done it's done you know we'll see oh, yeah, how it that. goes but you know, it's uh, a lot of a lot of stuff out there. A lot of stuff you want to do, and and, and we're we're keeping at it. But uh, always interested in making more friends. And if anybody's got a cool place they want to tell me about or a cool story, I'm uh, always good to hit up for a chat. Awesome, that's so great to hear, man. Well, this this has been an absolutely fascinating crash course and a subtopic of UFO sightings that doesn't get talked about often and i'm so glad that this is what we landed on i know we, i've wanted you on since i started the podcast and we couldn't really like nail down a topic but i think this was a good one we haven't talked about it before there's clearly a lot of questions to still be asked about why all of these trial ufo encounters happen and i couldn't think of a better person to do that today so thank you again for coming on somewhere in the skies thank you ryan it is a pleasure and uh you're doing a great job with the show. Keep at it, buddy. That is it for this week's episode. All of Michael Huntington's work can be found on Facebook and on Instagram. Just search for Huntington Strange Travels. If you really want to help out Somewhere in the Skies, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes. It truly helps more than you know. Somewhere in the Skies is on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and on Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. The official merch store is open with several different designs. Visit tpublic.com and search for Somewhere in the Skies. That's T-E-E-Public.com. I will see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with Antica Productions and the Antica Podcast Network. To learn more, visit anticaproductions.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? 
All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.